Yeah, I, I like so much of the things that are difficult to count, people put a discount on mm -hmm. when it's really they need a markup. Yeah, it's because like, oh, you know, you could discount the things you can count because you know exactly how much they are. Mm -hmm. So if you want to discount them by 10%, your prerogative, you understand how much it is. The things you can't count, people are always discounting because they just don't know what they are. Mm -hmm. Like, you have no idea what this is. You have no idea how much value it contributes, how much intangibles there. You should be marking that up, if anything, right? Correct. And nobody, I mean, that's just not the way the world works. No, but, no. And, um, and, and it's one of the reasons why we have a people problem. I, I was even, I made a post about it the other day. It's like, so the industry's invested almost nothing in people. And then we're sitting here scratching our heads yeah. that we have a people problem. And yeah. it's like, well, if we spent as much as we do in preventative maintenance for equipment on our people, we'd be in a much better place. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I, I could be oversimplifying here and I, I am oversimplifying, but you, remind me, you did a post that was like a few months ago, I think, but about, about depreciation. Uh, and you were talking yeah. about depreciation being one of the roots of competition. Didn't you do a, like a, a vlog or vlog? Yeah, I need to get the term. It wasn't, right. uh, wasn't depreciation though. It was. Okay. It, but I, I know what I, you're talking I've, about. I really thought that a big part of why, at least in our space, I won't speak to construction more generally, but the same principles apply. You get this depreciation non-cash element that I think people hack into all the time when they absolutely should not, right? Mm -hmm. So I feel like in our industry, people price below where they should be in large part because of either tax deferral incentives or depreciation on equipment that they feel is like a fluffy estimate. But they don't actually see like the cash. They can they can move around their payables and their working capital enough that they don't actually see the payments. They don't mm -hmm. have to account for those, and then they don't fully price in true depreciation, which is hard to estimate anyway. Can you explain depreciation? So just in layman terms, the value loss of your equipment. So you yeah. buy it at a new price. You're going to sell it at some price down the road, and in between there, you're going to use it for some number of hours. And during that time, it, in our industry, right, it loses value. So it mm -hmm. depreciates. Uh, you might buy a house with the thought that it's going to appreciate. I'm going to buy it for something and I'm going to sell it for more in the future. I don't know a single piece of equipment that that is generally how it works over time. Mm -hmm. So I think people, but that is an estimate because you don't, you know what you're buying it for today. You don't know what you're going to sell it for in the future. Um, and so you have to estimate that number. But if you don't, if you're not good at estimating it, you aren't going to be good at costing your work. Mm -hmm. In the meantime, if you're on a, just a loan payment for that piece of equipment or even sort of better or worse, depending how you look at it, it's in equity. There's no cash impact to the uh, ownership of that equipment. And so I think people typically will dip into that effective mm -hmm. cost that's being lost out of the machine and say, it's not real cost because I'm working toward owning the machine. Sure. You know, I'm, I'm managing my networking capital enough that I've got the cash to make the payments. But then you say, by the end of the time you sold that, did you price high enough to actually replace it? Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people don't. Yeah. Uh, I think that people get into um, under depreciating equipment or being rosy about their assumptions or just not understanding the concept. It's, it's easy to be rosy about assumptions in business, though, as I've learned. It's a hard balance because you're, especially when you're growing a business, which is the goal of growing a business, or which is the goal of business, I think, when you're a small business, especially, is you want to keep setting goals, big goals and doing big things and swinging for the fence. And, uh, but a lot of it, it, as you become bigger and bigger, that kind of starts to bite you in the ass a little bit. Uh -huh. And it's definitely, we've been there where it's like, okay, we're probably here. 
because we've set too big of goals. <laughs> so, so we weren't wrong in doing so. That said, it's not, it's not a sustainable business strategy at the same time. You don't win work by pricing your first project really, really profitably <laughs> no. very often, no. right? You get into things because you had a bad or flawed assumption and that led you to be competitive enough to win a job, that led you to be naive enough to get into the business, that led you to learn enough to get better at that business, and hopefully you survive that cycle to get to the point where you can run it sustainably. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I completely agree. You just, uh, if you're gonna grow the business, you have to take some swings, you have to take some risks, and then you put yourself in a position that if you do it right, you've learned enough that you can adjust. I think the struggle is when people make the same mistakes over and over again and mm -hmm. don't learn and don't adjust. Um, you know, if you, if you struggle on that first project, but then don't find the market fit to get where you need to be on the pricing side, or don't find the efficiencies internally to get to the cost structure you should have been at. That's, what's really frustrating uh, when you're competing against people like that. Um, because you ultimately have to learn in order to survive, but I think you ultimately have to take some swings in order to create, to begin with. I definitely think so. I mean, that's what we've been trying to do. You've been, sounds like you've been taking some swings too. Talking about the lots thing? Well, no, just a lot's changed. Are we even recording this live right now? We are. Are we just going? Well, it's not live. Ah, whatever. Whoever's listening to this, it'll be a week or two. It, it, well, what is this? This Thursday. Sorry to sidebar. I'm making extra work for you. This goes this Thursday. Uh, okay. Um, but you... Um, we didn't do any prep for this conversation, so I'll just keep rolling. No. So I met, I met you... How long had you run Bellwether when I met you? Well, I called it was pretty you. New. Yeah, I called you well, Keaton because us. I had gotten your number. And I said, "How is your social media where it is?" Mm -hmm. I am going to start an account for this forestry company I'm running, and I called you, and you gave me a lot of pointers over the phone, uh, which would have been in 2017, early 2017. It was, yeah, sometime in 2017. I think it was late 2017. I remember. Was it late? Okay, mm -hmm. I just remember I met, you. I, I met Keaton like. In the fall of 2017. Okay. Yeah. Okay. We have to look for what, some of my first Bellwether posts because yeah. you, I, I know you initially just said, uh, or I, actually that what we should look to, to landmark that would be when I started following accounts like Daily Construction. Yeah. I, 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 of the tips you gave me back then over the phone <laughs> on a lot late night conversation, mm -hmm. I remember you have to post every day. Uh -huh. You need to tag people in these posts that say daily in their name because uh -huh. they're reposting content and uh -huh. find big followers. Yeah. And so we started doing a few of those things and you said, it doesn't even matter what you post. You just need to post. Yeah. Um, and I still don't, you know, as an organization, we don't even successfully do that. But, but you've, you've done well, better than, better than most logging companies. Yeah. I'd like to think we have a, you know, we have got, I don't know, some three or 4,000 followers and yeah. we just had, uh, Somebody that came to us through, I think, hearing about our company on your podcast, a guy named Alden, a Clemson graduate who started as a forester for us, but now runs a lot of our social media. Imagine that. Uh, and, you know, introduced to me through you. And um, he is uh, just our TikTok account. So I guess we got to be nice. one of the only logging companies out there with a TikTok account. Yeah. I have to imagine. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah. Um, but you, you were still, when we met, it was the Bellwether was still pretty new. The, not the company, but your involvement in Bellwether. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I had been less than a full year, I think, uh, with the business. And the, the business itself, which was very small prior to us taking it over, um, had 10 years of history, but most of that history was with 
fewer than 10 employees. How many, so how many crews were there when you guys bought it? Two? Two crews we bought it within four months, six. Yeah. Um, and then grew a little bit from there, but then right size backtracked a bit because we were doing things that weren't sustainable. Mm-hmm. And now we've gotten to the point where we've really figured it out, I think. Like what's not um, sustainable? What was unsustainable about that growth? Yeah. It was uh, growing into a new area where there's really geographic synergies to running these businesses. So both trucking, the more concentrated your trucking is, the better the operation runs. Recruiting, understanding the uh, local labor force. And these mm-hmm. are really local local labor situations um, in rural areas throughout South Carolina where we work. So we all we did was move 100 miles to the west. And it mm-hmm. really was like running a different territory. We could have gone, I think, two or three states over for all. It would have been the same. Um, so we had that sort of as an issue. But then just just trying to grow and do it organically, which is the first time that we had actually started Cruise Up without uh, purchasing an existing logging operation. And so we were running into just general problems. I'm sure everyone faces like chemistry and staffing, um, you know, and, and trying to do the ramp up and mobilization of a new operation as opposed to just having the ability to flip the switch from one ownership team to the next ownership team. Mm-hmm. Uh, ultimately, even today, um, I still believe that taking over crews that have really good teams that just have bad management and bad sort of ownership principles and p- business principles, that's where we add the most value. Because we, uh, I think we've become pretty darn good at logging and pretty good at logistics and trucking in the industry. But we're still, the thing we're differentially better at is management. Uh, mm-hmm. business management, thinking through logging and trucking from an economic perspective, and then applying all the goods of those learnings to the guys on the ground so that we can differentially pay benefits and have incentives and do company parties and add value for our clients. And so, yeah, in the early days, we just hadn't had all that figured out and tried to grow organically outside of our territory and took it on the chin. And historically, especially the logging in the South, is not that sophisticated. Logging in the South is way different than logging in the Northwest. Logging in the Northwest is these big, very sophisticated companies like a warehouser or just these these behemoths. Yep. The South is not like that at all. It's very fragmented and very just simple. I feel like I think that two two of the differences between the regions is you said it the larger co- companies, which I think is a function of some of the larger land bases in the Pacific Northwest mm. and up into British Columbia. A lot of state-owned land, a lot of corporately held land, bigger management that goes on, and so there's a kind of bigger vendors and suppliers that do the logging and the and some of that as well. Um, in the southeast, incredibly fragmented land base, a lot of private own, lot, land ownership. Uh, and in order to facilitate actually making transactions to get all of the wood from these various private owners into these mills uh, to create the products, there has to be a lot of uh, this intermediary layer of dealers and a lot of different hands that go into uh, doing the transaction and then subcontracting the workout. Mm-hmm. And so there's just been no consolidation. Um, and additionally, I think that from a work standpoint, you look at the Pacific Northwest or most areas of the rest of the world, it's a lot of cut to length operations. So in the woods, they're getting to do one additional value added step, which is not just felling the tree and dragging it out of the woods, 
and doing some minimal processing, but they're actually cutting that log and the stems into cut to length pieces that meet the, meet the dimensions of mills. Mm. Uh, largely in the Pacific Northwest, you're looking at sawmills more often. In the Southeast, a good majority of what we're shipping is pulpwood, which is going for products that are critical, right? We're making corrugate. I think one of the mills makes the majority of the pizza boxes in America that, nice. that's in our area. Nice. Um, and you've got you know all these products, but they don't demand a cut to length, beautifully processed stem. We just go and ship in the Southeast what they call tree length. Mm-hmm. Cut it down, do some minimal processing to a top size, throw it on the truck. Uh, and I think for that reason too, you end up with it being a bit less of a, a high skill activity. There's still a lot of skill involved with sorting for the majority uh, 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 for all these different markets, but not so much in processing the actual log product. Yeah. It's uh, driving behind a logging truck in the Pacific Northwest is a lot different than in the South. In the South, driving behind a logging truck, a lot more terrifying because you're like, yeah, that's that's those are just whole trees sitting on that thing and uh, they should have cut a little bit more and off And they left that. the pointy end pointing <laughs> it at me. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of dangling off a little bit. We're, we're, we're going 65 miles an hour yeah. right now. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, a different, it's a different world. I am always amazed by how close drivers get to those things. Like they want to take a close look at them when, I mean, you should just stay back. Um, and it's not to say that these trucks aren't uh, incredibly, you know, it can be just as safe as anything else, but it's something different to look at when you're behind it. And yeah. you're not going to hit the bumper first in the south because the trees are coming off the back of that trailer. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's a different way to ship. It's more economical for the mills. Uh, they get a, a lower cost product because there's not an additional processing cut to length step that mm-hmm. occurs in the woods. That makes sense. Um, so when we, we met, uh, it was, it was early on, you guys grew, you right sized and it was, I think when we last talked, you were still in the thick of things or it was, I know it was, <laughs> it was a rough, not, not rough, but difficult few years, challenging, challenging. 2018, 19, and then to go right into, you know, the 2020 was about <laughs> when I didn't need 2020 in some ways. Yeah. Uh, so what, what, I, I, what happened to the, the lumber market in 2020 and then timber market in 2020? What's the correct, correct term? Timber? Well, I would say our overall is the forest products. For, okay. Forest products market. Yeah. What happened in 2020 and then where is it at now? Because I knew that was a hot topic, especially in the construction industry with where forest products are, where how, how expensive two by fours are, for example, and where is it at? Where is it at now? Yeah. And I'm going to start out by answering the most common question that my friends text me, which is, please, you have to be doing so well off of these lumber prices. Uh-huh. Well, first of all, we don't own a sawmill, <laughs> so we don't make lumber. So let's clear, clear that out. We are a logging and hauling company. We're doing the work in the woods to, to remove the timber and take it to the mill. So the sawmill is one of our customers. Number two, even if we were the supply and demand markets for lumber specifically, because it's probably who a lot of your building contractors are more interested in lumber than mm-hmm. paper products, mm-hmm. they're completely disconnected. So a high price for lumber on the, uh, for the contractors have to pay per board foot or for two by fours has really no no translation to the amount the mill is paying for the raw product coming into the door because those are completely separate functioning markets. Mm-hmm. The supply demand on the front side about how much are they able to produce with their capacity and how much is the market demanding for housing need and demand 
that is not connected at all to how many standing trees exist within a certain radius of this mill that are of saw timber grade mm -hmm. and how much uh, you know capacity is there to bring them to the mill for the, the capacity of the mill itself. So in general, mills have had their cake and eat it too for the last few years. Mm -hmm. uh, the markets obviously on the home building side have been really good for pricing. Uh, Sawmills have had very high prices. Everybody knows that. Uh, what fewer people know is that on the flip side, they're paying in general until of late, like the, the prices for saw timber had really not risen at all. Hmm. Uh, and that's you know, largely throughout the Southeast, uh, dating all the way back to the recession. There's something called the wall of wood, which was uh, the last time the housing market took a decline. A lot of landowners chose not to cut their timber down because prices fell. Uh, and that created, then there was an overstock of standing lumber quality timber. Meanwhile, the younger trees also grew up and became uh, that same size. Uh, and for a decade on, there's been an overstocked supply of saw timber quality trees to buy, meaning the, saw, the sawmills have not had to pay premium prices because there's more of it than they would need to meet their demand. Wow. Um, and so they have also had uh, kind of a nice environment to buy logs and a nice environment to sell them. Uh, so that's been the, the overall market uh, dynamics. Now, there was a blip, right, in 2020. Uh, I don't know, it was like three weeks, four weeks, six weeks, I can't even remember anymore, but mm -hmm. in that March-April timeframe where everyone thought the world was ending and uh, sawmills, you know, like everyone else, assumed that this was going to be really bad for the economy and for housing. And so they just said, shut it down, like cut capacities by... 25, 50%, depending on who you're looking at. Um, and then about six weeks later, realized that was the opposite of what they should have done. They mm -hmm. should have been ramping capacity, producing as much as they could. Um, but that period of time was quite stressful for us. Uh, as, you, as you can imagine, a forest doesn't uniformly consist only of trees of one size. Mm -hmm. uh, and so <laughs> some of those trees get shipped to sawmills, but some of them have to go to pulp mills. And when a sawmill says, we're not buying trees anymore, uh, you can't just send a feller buncher operator in the woods and say, just cut those ones down. Yeah. We'll come back for the rest. <laughs> uh, it's just not economical. So you effectively render all of these tracts of land unharvestable, which creates a problem with the pulp mills too. Because you're like, well, I was counting on the pulp uh. trees. So we had these six weeks of a lot of confusion and juggling, figuring out what would we do in this environment where sawmills weren't buying. Um, so I think that just is one way to illustrate just the interconnectedness of the forest market forest products market is we're all different companies optimizing different goals, operating in different markets. But when you really get back to the forest level, we're all in the same market and everyone's decisions affect everyone else. Um, yeah. It's one of the neat parts, but also a huge challenge for the industry. Well, that's the first thing you realize when you go, like the first thing, one of the, the very first place I went was one of your, one of your jobs and very first logging operation I ever visited. So this was 2018. I go out there, it's like April, or I meet you at the airport, we drive out to a site, and when you go out to a logging operation, the first place you typically see is the the deck where mm -hmm. the loader's at, laying out all of the products. And you think, well, you just, yeah, you send a buncher into the woods, it cuts the trees down, you throw them on trucks, and they just go to the mill. That's what happens. But there's so many different products that come out of every track that it 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 makes it uh, it makes it really, really complex. So I had no idea that that was a thing until I saw how many different piles there are being sorted out. And I was like, oh, okay, so this is way more complex than, than it looks. 
all those guys in the woods, you've got three guys running the feller buncher, cut the tree down, mm-hmm. the skitter to drag it out of the woods, and the loader to put on the truck. You would think this is incredibly simple and just anybody could go do these jobs. All three of those guys see the forest the way that, you know, you, you, people you know, see the matrix in the movie where mm-hmm. like, what are they looking at? They're not looking at what I'm looking at. I'm just seeing green zeros and ones. They're seeing more. That's how these guys see the forest, right? They're like walking through there. They see different diameter at breast height, DBHs. Mm. Those translate into products. They look up at the tide of the tree. They say, okay, there's two logs and a stick of pulpwood at the top. Oh, there's one log and two sticks of pulpwood. Nope, this Mm. is a pulpwood tree. And that's going all the way from the guy cutting it down, trying to cut down the same kind of trees so that when he lays down a pile, it's efficiently sorted Mm. so that when the skitter comes to pick it up, we don't want that. That's an efficient job to have to sort wood at that stage. So he needs it laid down by product. So has to start that way. Then he drags it to the uh, to the deck, right? And it has to be put in an efficient manner so that a knuckle boom loader operator mounted on a trailer, so limited ability to move, mm-hmm. can sort those into the piles that you saw when you visited. Yeah. And then efficiently put them on the truck, dynamically managing the inventories, knowing that, oh, we're in a heavy, uh, heavy patch of pulpwood right now. So I'm going to have this pulpwood pile is going to pile up on me. When I have a truck come in here for this... Uh, the saw timber, am I going to be able to get to it, right? Am I going to be able to move it around and get it on the back of this truck? So there's so much to think about. And that's before you even get into the whole logistics side of the business and the fact that loader operators also having to gauge where the demand exists and if mm-hmm. he can ship all products. So um, it's it's this really simple three-stage operation with the truck on the end of it that is actually immensely complex when you get down to managing it at the track-by-track level. So the the market, everything shuts down and then ramps way back up timber, forest products, the, the price of everything goes through the roof. The loggers don't see a lot of that. None of it in 2020 for sure. None of it in 2020. Uh, but the sawmills and all the mills are making money, hand up more money than they've made in a Sawmills in particular, yeah. Saw, sawmills in particular because those prices are pretty commonly known through the public random lengths and, and, yeah. and whatnot. They're published pretty well. So we we know that the sawmills did quite well, as everyone knows, with the building boom. Uh-huh. And then what's happened with the market recently? Like you said, it, it's somewhat switched. I think more so that demand, I mean, it's like the whole economy. Demand stayed really strong. Uh, I think, think we're in this post-COVID economy. A lot of people talk about that. Demand is strong, but the supply chain is just all over the freaking place. Mm-hmm. And you've got shortages. And I think one of the things that's happened in the, with, with, worker shortages, with parts shortages, with these global supply chains is just everything is in short supply. And so industries that used to fight amongst themselves are now fighting with each other. Mm. So everyone's looking and saying, how can I get creative and solve my problem? And to an extent, I think that has led to the highest value adding industries to be able to win some of those battles and lower value added industries or commodity industries, or certainly, you know, when we're in forest products, which is a, a definitive commodity uh, we're kind of having to get really creative, but having to now, instead of just battle amongst the forest products industry, fight with other industries that want truck drivers and want skilled equipment labor. And the mills are dealing with the same thing. And I think all of us in this industry are dealing with technicians shortages and people to fix things. Mm-hmm. And it, it's all, you know, industries trying to look wherever they can to get good talent and talent generally wanting to move up market. Right. And move into the best positions that they can. 
And I think that's left Forest Products with this situation where it's really difficult to run a Forest Products company right now. Um, and trucking in specific is in uh, short supply for a lot of people. Um, and the financial situation has now been exacerbated by fuel and general inflation, which I think everyone's feeling on equipment prices, parts, uh, orders. Productivity is maybe a little bit lower. You still deal with COVID outages like everyone and part supply issues. I, I know it takes us significantly longer to get a truck turned out of the shop than it used to. Mm-hmm. All these things just put a lot of pressure on the business. And in this industry, that's led to lower uh, supply. So there's fewer loggers, I think, that are out there and f- certainly fewer truck drivers that were in this industry uh, one, two, three years ago, certainly the five years ago. All the while, demand, I think, at the mill level has stayed very, very strong. They have a lot of customer ability to pay and they're trying to sell their goods. Um, and so we've had a little bit more of what we call an open order environment uh, more often than not for the past year where uh, we, they say, hey, how much can you produce? Bring it on, <laughs> which is not the same mm. as it was from when you and I were talking, we're dealing with, all right, we're allowed to ship 50 loads into this mill. We really need 60 something to be, you know, to even make it. How do we try to fit our business model to the amount of demand that exists in the market today? Um, so we've, we've got a, a little bit of a, a different supply demand environment, which is benefiting us now, but yeah. partially it's benefiting us because it's so hard to run a business right now. Um, it is, it is interesting because there's a lot of businesses that need truck drivers right now. And it's not driving a logging truck is a specialized kind of truck driving, but it's truck driving nonetheless. So you have e-commerce and all these other businesses knocking on their door. And a lot of times they have just more money, bigger margins to go hire those people. But the forestry product side of things, it's pretty essential. I mean, like toilet paper, you know, things like that, that are pretty much a basic necessity that doesn't exist without the forestry products. So you have all these industries out for themselves. And it's funny, it's like Amazon, probably the biggest, the, the biggest consumer of boxes, like probably biggest consumer of, of cardboard in the United States, if I had to guess. But they're the ones taking <laughs> all the people that you need <laughs> to go create the product in the first place. So it's just this it's, it's weird situation that no one has figured out right now. Uh, it's, it's like there's, it's very hard to find a net gain anywhere because, uh-huh. uh, you know, when you're in this constrained environment, someone's always taking from someone else, which is very different than the mindset. You know, I think there's a better way to live, which is one of abundance and thinking yeah. about how to increase the pie. But we are in this moment working back towards that where there's a short supply of a lot of things. Um, yeah, so we, we certainly have seen some of our drivers take positions and companies that they're moving up market. But I also, um, you know, I think that's on us to create the right value proposition and have that conversation with our customers. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's, at the end of the day, I think the one thing that can be more important to you than the margin structure of your industry or how value added the services that you provide is how you can talk about it, how you understand your business and how you tell the story of where you are and what's important. And I think for for our business, what's really set us aside is just being able to go or set us apart is being able to go to our customers and talk about what we're experiencing, what we want to do about it and why we want mm-hmm. to do that and then ask, make the ask. And I think when you do that, most of many customers are have been understanding and and have been wanting to help solve the problem and not wanting to lose all of our drivers to Amazon and not yeah. wanting to lose them to Coca-Cola. Um, they want to say, what do we need to do, right, to, to make this happen? Because we have a 
multi-hundred million dollar facility we need to run and it only runs if these drivers keep showing up. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think there is a willingness to solve the problem, but it starts with telling the story. Well, and we we talked about earlier, it's, okay, great, you can cut all this wood down, cut all these trees down, but they're they're worthless just sitting out there on the land they don't they don't they're 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 worth nothing until they get to the mill and to get it to the mill you need trucking and so it is uh, it's it's an essential part of the business you can and, and it's the same thing with contractors and i think we were talking about this everybody's looking at trucking like a liability or a nuisance or a pain in the ass but i think that's i think it's one of the biggest opportunities and they're giving all of their truck driving to other companies, but that's essentially giving control of your whole project to somebody else, yep. your whole operation to somebody else. Like if you give your trucks to somebody else, now you are, now you are at, it doesn't matter how productive your logging crews are. It doesn't matter what kind of contracts you have at the mills. You're, you're, you are, they control your business. Absolutely. Yeah. I, that's one thing since 20, 17, 2016, when I started doing this business that I immediately did differently probably than the industry, which is uh, trucking on its face in this industry is a terrible business. And that's why people call it a nuisance and a necessary evil. Mm -hmm. Logging on its face is a really good business. So everybody wants to do it. There's generally been oversupply and and people are happy that are in in that business. The truth of it is though, nowadays, you can't have one or the other. You have to have both. Mm. Uh, you can't do one without the other. And logging is a terrible business if you don't have trucking. Um, and so you need that trucking. And we invested differentially in that trucking force by putting new equipment, better drivers, trying to hire fleet management services, things that just weren't happening at the time. Five years on, you know, trucking is certainly something we're known for. We've got these green trucks running on the road that are funny looking compared to most of the loggers that we compete with. Yeah. But they've been this symbol of uh, people know that's a nice truck that came in here. I think now uh, I've had Nils remark to me that like we see a lot more nice trucks in here now than we did a few years ago. I think it's because everyone has been copying you. Mm. Uh, That We put some nice trucks on the road. We say this is how it should be done. And some people have followed. Uh, But it's a tough decision because you have to be willing to say trucking is part of my business. And a lot of people want to say it's not, uh, but it is absolutely core to the business model. It's core to keeping the uh, the revenue coming in and making sure, like you said, that the, the, the all the effort that's put in in the woods get converted to revenue. And ultimately, my customer is the mill. So if I say, hey, I don't know what happened between my loader and you. It just didn't show up. I thought it would have showed up. We, we loaded on the truck. I have to have control over that. I have to be able to tell them that I have the ability to influence the only thing that matters to them, which is the wood being mm-hmm. delivered to their facilities. So, mm-hmm. um, but it's only getting harder, I think, to run small trucking companies this day and age. Uh, and so, you know, I'm glad we put in the hard work we did to learn about how to do it. And now we need to put in the hard work to learn how to do it even better at scale. And the scale part's interesting because is that something like we just talked about the the bigger partners that came in and all oh, that. Oh, you can we can absolutely talk about all that. that's public knowledge. Absolutely, yeah. So you, you go from this small little logging company to then scaling up to investing in trucking to right sizing, and then over the past two years, really dialing in logging operations. Like you've you've said, everything is it's going really well now, which is awesome. Um, thanks to 
I think a lot of it's been you you started to get the right leadership, like a Udell, for yes, example, sir. in place and allowed them to do what they do. And I think it's bared a lot of fruit. Yeah. The first thing for us to mature as an organization from some acquired crews uh, that didn't have the owners managing them anymore was getting a solid level of leadership in place. Mm-hmm. And so you mentioned Udell. We've got a timber procurement leader named Wes. We've got uh, um, trucking leadership on our team that has been overseeing the fleet. And these are all positions that didn't exist uh, in the early years. Mm-hmm. So we put them in place and they really have given the guys a lot more uh, guidance and support that a lot of logging crews don't get. Um, helping them troubleshoot daily issues, connecting them to the back office environment, and just creating a better place to work where uh, there's this feeling now where if you're really good at what you do and you're in a region where we are, like this is a good place to come be a foreman. This is a good place to come be a skitter driver and work your way up the ladder. Yeah, um, I've, I truly believe by adding those positions, which we've mostly filled through internal means, they've been people that have been promoted from within, not mm-hmm. hired from the outside. We just said this message, which is very true and very much how I believe, which is this isn't a family company. It doesn't matter what your name is. You come in here and you perform, you're going to get the first shot Mm -hmm. at these opportunities. Mm -hmm. We're not going to go outside for those kinds of jobs. Um, So it creates a good culture. I have no doubt that a lot of the people here look up and say, I really like reporting to you, Dell. And he gets it because he used to do what I do. Well, when I met him, he was in a Feller Buncher. Yeah. I have a picture of him next to his Feller Buncher. And now he runs uh, nine crews and about 40 people. And we actually, because I believe so strongly that trucking and logging are so heavily integrated, we actually have both report through him, mm-hmm. despite having fleet management underneath of Udell's purview. Um, so he you know, roughly has 70 people reporting to him. And, and three years ago, he was uh, operating the Feller Buncher, which he'd been doing for a decade. And uh, the truth is, without that experience, he wouldn't be nearly as good mm-hmm. at what he's doing. Uh, he needed that. Um, and our company needed that. Yeah. You said something interesting there. It was that it's not a family company, which I think is fascinating because there is a strong preference in the blue collar world for family businesses. And everybody really stresses the family business, family business, family business. But the downside to a family business is if your last name doesn't line up with the name on the front door. There's only so much opportunity there in theory. That's not every, that's not every family business, obviously. Um, like we had Dan Garcia in here. He runs CW Matthews, for example. That's a family business, but they brought someone else in and he's earned that position and it's doing, done extremely well at it. But there's a lot of places and probably these small logging companies mm-hmm. where you are what you are. There's no opportunity beyond that. And for somebody that's motivated, that it's just, that's not a long-term career plan for them. I would say in our market in particular, there's not any other non-family businesses I can think of. So we're, we are the only one that isn't closely held or held by a family member. And yeah, I think that is what draws many people to our company. Uh, and you combine not being a family business with also having the ambition to grow and the desire to do so responsibly with good management, to look over safety and productivity and you're actually doing a good job, uh, that creates opportunities. And so mm-hmm. people come in and say, well, there are going to be opportunities. They're growing. And those opportunities could go to anyone because they're not a family company. And in case I needed more proof, there they are, right? There's been some examples of this. 
with people getting promoted from within. Because uh, still, you could be a not family company, you could be growing, and you could choose that you need to bring in talent from the outside. Sure. And we still do that. You know, there's positions that that's the right thing to do and you have to go about it that way. Um, but I've said for any position, if the skills exist on the team to meet the need the business has, always going to look internally first. Because um, I think career pathing within these organizations is a really, it's a sorely missing aspect of heavy equipment and certainly driving trucks. Uh, just There's just not a lot of places to go and you need to uh, provide as many incentives as you can so that people who have ambition and have desire to do more than what they're doing today mm-hmm. can see a path. Now, to the point I was getting to earlier, you uh, were in a really good spot and it uh, attracted the interest of a much, 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 much larger, ultimately a much larger business that bought a majority of the company. Well, how long ago? A year ago? No, six months ago. Six months ago. Yeah, I guess I talked to you early this year, mm-hmm. January. Yeah. About it. And it was pretty Just damn after new. Christmas Eve. We mostly finalized on Christmas Eve and at the end of the year last year. So how has that changed things? Because that, when I talked to you, I was like, well, that's, <laughs> that's interesting. <laughs> I didn't see that one coming. I mean, for, for who, I, I figured there was a exit at some point or, you know, I, that doesn't necessarily surprise me. There's been a lot of acquisitions going on just in general. Um, so I'm always open to that because I feel like anybody can sell nowadays with what's going on, but to who you sold to, it's particularly interesting. Yeah. And uh, to be very clear, we weren't on the exit path by any means. Yeah, we, yeah, yeah. Actually, yeah. I would say just begun to really figure it out and feel like the vision could unfold over several years. Which is why I was more surprised. To managing it year over year. Yeah. 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 So we were, I mean, it was exciting um, for us to be running the business in 2021, coming out of 2020, operating in a strong way, feeling like market dynamics were getting a little bit better for us to achieve some of the things we wanted to. So the timing... Um, was was good for us to hold. However, I think like you've just said, the partner was unique. So it got our attention. Um, partners, the Lots Group, they're uh, a subsidiary of uh, the Trayton Group, which is a large truck manufacturer. Um, and they have global brands building trucks for heavy industry, you know, with a heavy focus in forestry and mining and mm-hmm. agriculture. Um, and they have a subsidiary that's trying to do innovative things in the transport space to learn about the business models of the future, which are going to require them to know more about their customers. Um, so forestry in specific is an area that they have a focus area on for thinking about the future of EV vehicles and of autonomous transport. And so coming from where I was for five years and fighting the daily grind battles of trying to get guys hired and move wood and keep the mills happy and figure out how to have a sustainable business having someone come in and talk about EV and autonomous was kind of like almost being in a dream. You're like, this; these aren't the kinds of things I need to think about for a decade. Um, and so it, it piques your interest, big company, a lot of resources, and an interesting and compelling vision to want to improve transport. Mm-hmm. So uh, LOTS ultimately stands for Lean Optimized Transportation Solutions. So um, in addition to sort of these piloting and, and figuring out these future technologies, what they really want is to bring new systems into the transport space that can eliminate waste in industries that haven't yet done that. Um, So in the U.S., vocational sectors like forestry, as you saw when you visited and as I've lived, just really underdeveloped logistics systems, Mm -hmm. if any logistics systems. 
So uh, when they looked at forestry and did a market assessment, this is an area where we could make a real impact. Um, they also wanted to start to understand the U.S. It's a it's a you know, the most innovative country in the world, and it's a place where autonomous and electric technologies are going to take foothold first. And so they wanted to be here. And this is it's a Swedish company, and it is a Swedish based company. Um, and they were looking at U.S. market assessment and looked at many many potential partners. But in looking in these vocational spaces, as we all know, a lot of small companies um, and uh, finding a partner that both was small and successful and in a space they were interested in and also had some leadership that was interested in growth and the journey, because this isn't a traditional journey for a company like ours to take. Yeah. I think that narrows the set quite a bit. Um, but ultimately, that was what made it made sense for them, for, for us uh, we just immediately leapfrogged from this small company, resource constrained, fighting it out every single day, um, really having differentiators, but also on some, in some regards, competing on level footing with our competitors to now we're in a sense playing a bit of a different game. Uh, and so we've got access to really top management talent in Sweden, uh, a support team with business development, corporate development, finance, operational resources that, uh, again, are giving us services that we previously maybe couldn't have afforded. Um, they're giving us this futuristic vision, which is the ability to mesh the day-to-day -day with a larger purpose and vision of pushing forward some of these technologies and business models that are really enticing to some people mm -hmm. and, and that brings in a different level of talent to want to work with us. Um, yeah, and then, uh, and then ultimately uh, the ability to just have additional resources in the company, right, um, to pursue growth because we have this now uh, instead of what I would have said, an incremental growth strategy that we had before and do whatever I can handle and whatever my capacity can handle. Now we have much larger growth ambitions to go after opportunities within the industry and build the kind of scale that we think we need to have a really good trucking fleet. How did they even find you? Investment banker. Uh, an investment banking firm that they were using was doing a market search and found me and I, really? they emailed and I deleted the first few yeah. emails. Yeah. You know, is you, I'm I, sure you I, get it. I get a lot you of get them these now. emails. I, I would love yeah. to buy your business. Yeah. Uh, I'd love to have a call, you know, could you send uh -huh. me some information? And yeah, after a while of being in these things, you just delete, 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 yeah. delete. And, uh, thankfully he followed up again and, uh, the banker said, you know, this is a really interesting opportunity and sent me more of a, I would say, a a normal response as opposed to a form email. Mm -hmm. And that's uh, when I kind of read it a bit more closely and um, saw the buyer and saw that they were, you know, ultimately rolled up to Volkswagen. And anytime you get an email like that, it's, you're going to respond once you understand what it is. So uh, started the conversation, but even still, I mean, it was a year long process to get to the finish line. Yeah. Yeah. It's, we've, so, we had a, a we closed on an investment round last year, end of last year, and I didn't. <laughs> I am so naive. You you file all of this with the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, and in doing so, it becomes public information. I had no idea, <laughs> and so so starting in you know early this year, you start to get emails and messages from venture capital companies and and private equity companies and. And it's all the 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 form emails that they send out. Yep. And I'm sitting here. I'm like, or you want we want to buy your company or whatever it is. And 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 I'm, I'm saying I'm like, why the hell am I getting all these? Like, where 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 is this coming from? And then I realized, 
oh, once we file with the SEC, now we become part of this database and they just go in there and scrape it and send all these emails out looking for opportunities. That makes sense. And you gave them even better information than they had on me because you, through that filing, showed that you were investable. Correct. Right. Whereas yeah. a lot of these people that are in the, the lower market, which is, you know, small business, uh, they're just going out off of LinkedIn or uh, you know, yeah. Dunn's list or other yeah. kinds of business lists. And they they need to send an even tighter form email because they're <laughs> going to send 10x the number of emails to get a uh, legitimate acquisition target. So that is that uh, is fascinating, though, that it just came about randomly. Yeah. Pretty, pretty good timing and really aligns with where you guys want to go. I mean, that at the end of the day, the the email and the follow through by the banker was what got me to take the phone call. But you have to have some larger reason to want to pursue the partnership. And for me, it had always been about trucking. That's the pain point in the industry mm. is what we were differentially focusing on. Mm. And it also was the toughest problem for me to solve. It is just, uh, it's not just a bellwether problem. It's not just a forestry problem. It's a uh, nationwide, if not North American, if not some other areas of the world problem is is trucking and how to get these systems working better and recruit good people. Yeah, um, They came in and said, that's what we're most interested in. That's what we want to fix. We want to work on logistics. We want to grow the trucking business. I said, if we can figure this problem out together, we will be everywhere I dreamed of being and beyond. And in speaking with them and understanding the resources and the thought they had, they built a business from scratch in Brazil that now has a thousand drivers and uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds of trucks, uh, oftentimes double shifted. And um, that operation was built very quickly. And the expertise on that team is is expertise I now have access to. Mm. Um, so it felt very comfortable that the vision was really aligned with where I wanted to go with the company and that it was just going to supercharge our path. It is um, what I've always found most interesting with you and and then Keaton, who originally int introduced us, was you you were... You've always had a desire to really make the forest products industry better. Like you're, you, you haven't really been, yeah, you need to make a functional business because that's how it all works, but it's not been about scale and go make a big business so we can talk about how much revenue we have and that's it. Like I feel like a lot of people are there. They're just driven by yeah. growth, revenue how much you have on your balance sheet. There's just, and, and, and okay, if that drives you, that drives you, but you've always been focused on, hey, uh, these logging operations are not, not as efficient as they can be. And they're oftentimes getting taken advantage of because there's a flaw in how the industry's laid out. Maybe we can go create a business that starts to change that. And I feel like you've, you've done, not you haven't done it, but you've made a lot of progress towards that in the past four years. A lot of progress. Uh, yeah, I think we've made progress as a team and the progress we've made has made echoes in the industry also in that uh, I still think we were one of the very first in South Carolina to put dash cameras in the trucks. And now it's very uncommon that you would see trucks without dash cameras mm. from the bigger operations. Um, simple things that forestry industry is typically behind the rest of the world, but just us going out and saying, let's catch up, others have caught up as well. So I feel like we have made a dent. But ultimately, yeah, I mean, I grew up in a frugal Midwestern home and, uh, you know, debt is a bad word and, you know, don't take risk, just live responsibly. Mm -hmm. um, 
And so all these like values that have been instilled in me have made it such that, you know, at times I probably am not as risk seeking as I could be with the business, but it also makes me have a, a high level of responsibility, I think, for the people on the team. And we've just pursued the direction we pursued at the pace we could to feel like we weren't going to break it. Cause I always felt like we had families depending on us and people depending on us and customers depending on us. Yeah. So, um, yeah, but we've made, we've made a lot of progress and I, and I don't think we've left the people behind at all. Uh, we've raised wages every year. Um, even in our tough years, we knew people were core to what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, like the, the people are more important than the machine. Uh, the, uh, you know, so at the end of the day, we've tried to go on this journey where we start to create an industry where it isn't a flat pay rate structure and you're just going to work for your uncle because why would I ever go work somewhere else? But you say, I want to go work there because it's interesting work. I learn how to do the work and feel accomplished about what I do. I know that they'll take care of me um, and they're working toward a better industry, which ultimately means better financial returns for me, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we, more than any other year, we're experiencing price increases this year. Yeah. You can't, you can't expect to run your business without giving raises every year. And yeah. there's a lot of people in this industry that have done that uh, and there are, that are slow to catch up. And so I think in all those ways, we've tried to create this environment where employees are getting benefits they wouldn't get elsewhere, are getting a good work environment, good management structure, safe place to go to work. And ultimately the promise that more opportunities or at least higher wages will be fought for by their management for the company and not just pocketed or or not thought about. It's pretty cool. I mean, it's, and you were saying, uh, you know, I've come a long way because you, I think it was the first check I got for photography. You gave it to me. It was like two grand. $2,000. Yeah. And it was, it was a paper check. It was Where the first. shares? The, fr- the first ever <laughs> check I got as a business owner was, was you gave it to me. And then I stayed in your apartment in Columbia. Yep. Uh, so I didn't, and, and you drove me around, so I had no yep. rental car. I had no hotel expense, but then the flights, you know, ended up being a ton of money and it you was, probably lost money I probably deal. lost money on and, the, on and the deal. And I think that, uh, <laughs> actually, I think Udell dropped a tree on your drone. E, that was a second, that was the, second, it was the yeah, other job. That was another, so it wasn't another visit. Okay, but, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. That was another visit, but that right. made, it was recording. So it made good footage. Yeah. If the drone gets r- destroyed <laughs> while recording and you can get the footage back, worth the drone yeah but what if it gets destroyed and it wasn't recording or you don't get the footage then it's like that's a bummer yeah um but um (laughs) it's you were saying you know i've i've progressed since then but it's been cool to watch you guys progress since then because i feel like i've been on the sidelines of what you guys are doing it's like wow this you know so these they said they were going to go do this and they've they've done that (laughs) like which doesn't sound like a big achievement, but in business, that's a big achievement. You say you're going to go do something, you do it. And you're like, oh, okay, cool. And then this is that that next phase of it, but you have a lot more yeah. resources to go do it even better. One of my favorite quotes is, I think it's Bill Gates attributed, but you, know, you, you always overestimate what you can accomplish in one year and underestimate what you can accomplish in 10 years. Mm-hmm. I think you could scale that back to five even because- I feel like every single year at the end of the year, I say like, we did not do nearly as much as I was trying to accomplish this year. And I feel behind. But then when you get to the end of five years, you're like, how did I possibly get this accomplished? Or we've moved so far, right? So I I think that's one of the things is just, we're both kind of recognizing how far we've come in part because we've been doing it a while. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's really difficult to recognize it early on. Uh, And, and, uh, 
I, I think it's only it only compounds over time. So I feel like we're getting to that uh, hockey stick point in an industry that really doesn't have any idea what a hockey stick is. Yeah. Right. But I think we're going to start to see real stuff happen now. We're bringing on, like I said, we've got talent from from Sweden that's helping us with solve problems we've never been able to have the analytical horsepower to look at before. We're bringing on new key people within finance and business development within the company to do things that we've never been able to do for our customers before. And it's just a, it's just a way of operating the business that's going to immediately show our customers and the people that work with us how much better the industry can be. Um, we were doing it, you know, on a uh, bootstrapping basically. Mm-hmm. Now we're doing it with a little bit more commitment. And I think that the next five years is going to show a little bit more an exciting growth path for us than even the last five has. But the last five could not, we could not produce the next five without having experienced the last five. Sure. I think, I think the blue collar world in general has some of the most potential out of any industry in the country going forward. And it, it, it pisses me off. I, so I, I used to, in college, I used to read um, every weekend. My, my, my break from school was reading. And I would, <laughs> and I remember my girlfriend in college, she'd be so annoyed because it'd be Saturday morning. I'd be up and out of there, you know, by like 5.30, going to, to get coffee at 6.30 and go read and just sit by myself for two or three hours. And uh, I would always read, uh, well, we, we, made, we made a deal. I get one, one morning out of the weekend and then the other morning we can do whatever. So it worked out great. But uh, You're not sounding like uh, someone I'd want to be dating, but that's just No, uh, but it was like, it was just, it's always been my thing. And I got away from just sitting and reading for a little bit in, on, on the weekends, got back into it. So I read Forbes and Fortune and some of these business magazines. Mm-hmm. And it used to be about a bunch of different things. Now, every edition I read, and I've almost, I'm almost just going to give up on reading these stupid magazines now. It's all about Bitcoin or NFTs or, you know, uh, it's just like, okay, yeah, there's this whole computer world and there's all this opportunity. I get that. Well, talk about a little bit. I would love to learn about what blockchain is and the potentials of it. I like... And I learned about blockchain. I'm like, yeah, that has a lot of potential benefit. <laughs> but then, so you have all these people just rushing off to this NFT crypto tech world, forgetting about this whole other world that's been totally underserved from a talent standpoint, in my opinion, for a sizable chunk of time that is not going away at all. So the opportunity there, I think just at scale is greater because it's not going away anytime soon. So it's stable and the demand, so the demand's not going away, but the ability to serve the market. (laughs) I I always like, it's a ridiculously simple framework, but two things generally happen. You build and you maintain. Uh After it's built, it has to be maintained. You got the dismantle or, or get rid of at the end yeah. part, but that's you know less important, I think. And everybody, it feels like for the last ten years, has all wanted to be a builder, innovate, be in a startup, do something new, get away from the old stodgy industries. I don't want to work at GE. I want to work at Facebook. Yeah. And to your point, I think there's just been this. Wait a minute. We 
similar to the tree example I gave earlier of the younger trees growing to the same age, but we have been building new things that need to be maintained, but we also have old things that need to be maintained. Mm -hmm. Now everything needs to be maintained. And a lot of these businesses that we're doing, even if we're building a new road, right, we're maintaining the road system. Mm -hmm. And even if we're, you know, what we're doing in forestry is, is sort of maintaining this ecosystem of forest products that's existed for a long time. It's not overly innovative, right? It's not uh, something that's going to uh, get, get you on the cover of Fortune magazine. No. But it has to be done. And there's no way to do many, many other tasks in the economy without these tasks continuing. Mm -hmm. But now there's a shortage. There's not enough people. Everybody's ran to build. Nobody's running towards maintain. And the maintain is just this massive opportunity, right? And yeah. so the big thing is the, uh, the opportunities there, but we need the leadership there. They need the leadership there to like see how to capitalize on that. Um, and we, I, I honestly think that a lot of these leaders in those companies just need to have higher expectations. Mm. Uh, they're not used to being in a position where their service is highly valued and in demand. And as the economy continues to flip that way, especially if some infrastructure projects get taken on and things go in that direction, I think people have to understand that like their service is highly valued. Um, and we all have to tell the story that we are going to be moving toward a direction of higher value service. Yeah. And those values are going to be reinvested in the people because it's what drives the results of the industry and it's what need is needed for the next generation. Totally. Yeah. I mean, like toilet paper is as inelastic as it gets. Is that the right word? Inelastic? I mean, yeah. yeah. I'm. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. We could have a debate about how inelastic toilet paper is because there's some <laughs> substitutes out there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but I mean, it's uh, from a market share perspective, toilet paper has a majority of the market share. Agreed. And so, and, and you need that. Yeah. You need that every day, no matter what you're doing, no matter where the economy's at. It doesn't go away. Yeah. You need to fill that demand. Yeah. I, I agreed. Agreed. And, what did everybody go the, after in COVID? Toilet paper. Toilet paper. Yeah. And you know what? All the substitutes for toilet paper don't alleviate the problem you're talking about, <laughs> which is they're all paper product substitutes for the most part. Yeah. So yeah, it's, uh, it's core products. I mean, for that's what I honestly, forest products is so core to daily life and whenever i read a climate change article that says we need to stop cutting trees down you 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 just want to scream about how many other things you need to write in that paragraph that would need to stop right mm -hmm. um the the problem is not logging the problem is sustainable forestry and harvesting practices and that's something that in the southeast i feel like is very very closely managed mm -hmm. with private land ownership a lot of personal pride as well as company management and ensuring that these these timber uh, plantations and stands are are managed for the future. Um, so yeah, because at the end of the day, you're not just talking about um, uh, some piece of an industry going away in the building products. You're talking about paper, pulp products, floorboards. Uh, there's wood in the roof of a lot of cars. Um, there's, uh, you know, we talked about pizza boxes and mm -hmm. you've got lumber and OSB at the store. I mean, you could go through a huge list of products that include wood and pulp. Um, and so it's a, just an incredibly critical industry. So I think that gives everybody a natural sense of purpose. Do you think, uh, would any of the mills you guys work with be cool with us showing, like, you cut the tree down and then you haul it out of the woods, you put it on a truck, you bring it to a mill, what happens with it at the mill? Do you think um, any of them would be open to that? I think so. Yeah. So that'd be pretty cool. Sawmills are certainly a little easier to understand and see. Inside, uh, you know, if, if you've never seen a paper machine before, they're massive, 
right? Multi-story machines. Yeah. It's incredible that the machine that makes a piece of paper is so big, but it is a, a massive process with a chemical, a highly technical chemical process on the front end and a, and a large kind of industrial manufacturing process to produce the product. A little bit harder to videograph, uh, yeah. uh, get video of. Yeah. Uh, sawmills, yeah. I maybe, think, maybe I think a sawmill. Could, yeah. We could certainly get into some. I think some some of them probably think the technology is fairly proprietary, but I think a lot of it these days is third party. <sighs> That's so all the same thing. You face that all the time, right? Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean and really, how, how closely is someone going to be able to reverse engineer the way your your machine quickly scans and cuts the log into an efficient... I, I doubt they're going to be able to uh, uh, spring any competitors from 10 seconds of video. No, but even contractors, they think they're so... They think they're so slick with how they do things. And it's like, I, I'm, I'm not here to call you not slick, but I, the other guy uses GPS too. <laughs> uh, I, <laughs> wow. You use GPS. Like we were talking about, you'd think that they'd be further along based on where the rest of society's at and what they talk about. Like it's the most groundbreaking thing ever. You're not comparing it to what the previous generation of that was. You're comparing it to where the rest of society is. And you're just like, okay, that's it? Like, is there, is there an and here or this is it? And, and you don't want to be rude, but at the same time, it's not always that impressive. Yeah. And I think it's different industries or different maturations. Like I said, in the forestry space, What's innovative in the forestry space was innovative in the most of the world 10 years ago. Yeah, well, contra- uh, moving dirt is the same thing. Moving dirt is the same thing. So yeah. uh, in the sawmills, I think you'd say the same, which is maybe 10 years ago or something, the uh, technology that scanned a log and figured out the best and most profitable configurations to cut, you know, according to that log's you know, dimensions and size and bark and also market prices and demand and inventory levels. Yeah. That would have been revolutionary. Totally. Nowadays, any big sawmills using well, something like that. Yeah. I mean, t- to compete, you have to use it. Yep. You're not competitive without it anymore, which is like grading with GPS. Like if you're not grading with GPS, you you can't bid jobs effectively and you, you can't make money anymore. So. And by the way, that's how we know we're making progress because you know, yeah. we're bringing these things into the world that were once innovative and now become commonplace. Mm-hmm. But then we have to look down the, sure. the, uh, the field. And I think that's one of the things you and I talk about a lot too, is just some of the solutions are technology-based. Some of them are human. And uh, I think everyone gets excited about the technology ones, but we need as many people as possible to get excited about the human ones. That's the, the whole workforce development conversation. It goes so quickly to technology. It goes so quickly to technology. And it's like, yeah, okay, cool. Technology. Great. Check that box. And then what? And yep. then what? Like, that, like a, a lot of people, I feel like, have this misconception that to attract the next generation, we just need to talk about the technology we have or use more technology. It's like, no, no, not really. I think we need to focus more on people, but going full circle, it's squishy. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think you've given me a lot of purpose in how I've thought about people in the sense that more so than compensation or, or anything else, it's all about how that person feels that job represents them and how they feel when they go to the job. And uh, I feel like that's where I, I, as a, you know, I don't consider myself old, but I realize that I'm not in my 20s anymore. And I underrated social media for a while. It was just something to scroll through and see your friends. And I grew up in the area era of Twitter was just post people posting what they had for lunch. And this is delete 
you know, we don't need to use this. I've realized it is, it can be a force for bad when people use it to, uh, profess stereotypes or put peer pressure on each other and feel like they have to keep up with the Joneses, but it can be incredible force for good when you get to showcase things about your life that you're proud of, that you should be proud of, that others in your life that you care about don't know. Mm -hmm. And uh, the more and more that we've been able to do, you know, we do small thing once in a while, Friday faces and stole that idea yeah. from you guys yeah, yeah, and yeah. throw up a few photographs and portraits that we do the best imitation of a build with photographer we can and and put them up and give a little bit of a shout out to somebody that deserves it. I think those really count for a lot and raise the profile of those positions in for the people in those communities with their family. Uh, it just makes a difference to know that your employer cares about you and they'll say it publicly. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the old world mentality would have been, I'm not going to post that guy up there. You might come ask for a raise or something, or, you yeah. know, I, I don't need to showcase one guy. What about all the other guys? And I think the answer is, Everyone likes to see people that are doing what they're doing be praised. Mm -hmm. um, well, I will conclude with, to this day, some of my favorite places I've ever visited are still bellwether logging operations. And I, like, I shit you not, to this day. It, it, I don't know, and I can't even tell you why. I just love, love, love visiting South Carolina logging operations. You should come back. Or at least send somebody to come back and I'll, visit us. I'll, I'll we got to do this because I was happy when you did it because I was following you and everything you posted was gray and brown. And then suddenly we had some green, mm -hmm. which is a really nice add to the uh, dirt world color palette. Sure. Um, but nowadays, like I think when you came, we had uh, a few crews that we were trying to figure out how to really get things humming. And today, you know, we've got, we're moving, uh, should do over 700,000 tons of timber, 25,000 truckloads, you know, nine amazing foremen, a bunch of managers, 40 truck drivers um, that that are all like a, a integral part of our team. Uh, and we're just headed in an awesome direction. And I truly believe that like for us, the challenges are the opportunities uh, because they create environments for change. And that's what we're trying to do is change things. And so- mm. Um, you should come photograph and see if you can tell the difference between the first time you were there because uh, I think there is a pretty big difference from well, where we are and where we were. So I'll I'll probably notice a little bit, but the thing is, I like my eye is untrained when it comes to logging. So an earth moving operation, I'm getting to the point now where it's like I can tell you if it's a good looking operation or not. Uh, and I and, okay, yeah, I have not moved a lot of dirt myself, but I've been around enough now where it's like. Yeah, yeah, this uh, logging, though, it's all cool to me. And it all just blows me away every time because I haven't been around it all that much. So I'll probably notice a little bit. But honestly, it's all just cool. Yeah. And I don't even know what I'm looking at a lot of times. It, it is, uh, it's so unseen. I mean, so much of what you've photographed and put out there is just things that are unseen and people don't understand. Um, I think that sometimes the danger of it is making it look simpler than it is because... Mm -hmm. I, I know I'm guilty of it, right? I think this is a good lesson for life. When you don't understand something, you generally think it's easier than it is. Mm -hmm. And once you begin to understand, you realize how much complexity is there. Mm -hmm. I look at the mining videos you post and say, that's just some guys scooping something and dumping it in the back oh, of the truck. Yeah. What a yeah. piece of cake. Mm -hmm. Nothing is easy. Um, and and in, in forestry, the same thing. I always fear that, that people will see it and say, that looks easy. Um, and it's certainly a lot of hard work, a labor of love. and we're, I'm just grateful that so many people have decided to dedicate 
their work time to coming and doing the logging operation. And that at our company, it's not just people that have grown up from the age of two knowing they were going to do it, that we've actually brought some people in that have decided to be in the industry, Mm. which is a completely different journey. And I appreciate those people uh, as much or more than the others. So yeah, um, yeah, it'd be super fun to have you back. We can do a a stem uh, standing timber through the mill uh, operation. We just got to pick the right client. That'd be cool. We can brainstorm yeah. on that. Yeah, we'll talk about that. You should, and then you know what we need to do is get some footage inside of a truck. Yeah, because yeah. you gotta. That is a piece of the puzzle that never gets documented. No, I mean, I mean, start from the beginning. Go with drive with the truck. You know, sit in the passenger seat. Go to the mill. Go through the mill, like from from A to Z. Yep, not, not A to Z, and then run by Home Depot and go to the lumber section. Of I, Home like Depot. I like it. I like it. I like it. Yeah. All right, Matt. Well, thanks for stopping by. Um, if you haven't checked out Bellwether, you guys are on Instagram. We are on Instagram. You're on LinkedIn. Uh, we're on LinkedIn. We're on TikTok now. Yeah. Um, and we also are, so we've got our website, bellwetherfp.com, oh, yeah. uh, which you yeah. and your team helped with. And then uh, we are also now part of the LOTS group, which is LOTS, L-O-T-S, group.com. And so we link through there, but we'll be doing some more co-branding with them as we uh kind of broaden the partnership in the US. Has the website been a worthwhile endeavor? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I assume that was part of why the inbound came for the deal. But I think also we get a lot of uh, applicants through the career page on the website. Um, We've gotten a ton through Jazz, which we still use, right? Uh, And in general, I think I use it a lot for storytelling just because it was that one place where we captured the story. And rather than march a slide deck in front of somebody i can Mm. always pull that up and show them Mm. the about page and the mission and it still resonates with me today so some of that hard thinking that uh didn't increase our loads on the day that i thought about it but it certainly increased the value of the business since we did it isn't that something you never know sometimes Mm. you got to just take your eyes off of the day to day Mm. all right matt well thanks for uh thanks for stopping by thanks for having me to your beautiful office